This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, Pete, we do a podcast about Connor Townsend and how he should score more goals. Probably what spurred him on, isn't it? Yeah, a bit of genius from uh, from you and me. I think it was you that said it most, to be honest. But see, you can take credit for that one. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know about... what I've been doing for the other 134 games he's been playing for this football club, though. <laughs> yeah, he could have said it a bit sooner, but... Yeah, I mean he's not he's not a natural finisher, is he? He saw from his uh he almost put it over the bar and he said that in his interview after the game as well, didn't he? That he uh, tried his best to miss it. But yeah. I I love that interview from him. He was so self deprecating, you know. I mean he first of all he says that, that you know, he says it's all about the ball, it's on the money and um and Jez who's doing the interview for the for the Albion uh, Instagram goes uh, it was a lovely finish into the roof of the net. He just goes I thought I'd missed it. <laughs> And I thought he had as well when I was when I saw it. It looked like yeah, it looked like he really got underneath it and almost shacked it over the bar. But you know, goals are goal, and got us the three points in the end as well. To come back from two goals was obviously excellent. And I was never never really in too much doubt that there would be a comeback on the cards, even though we were two 0 down after ten minutes. But I think that just kind of speaks of the confidence that Corbrand's brought into to us, the supporters, and and the players on the pitch as well to be able to come back from 2-0 down away from home. Yeah, I mean it was a, it was a bit, bit reminiscent of the Sunderland game really, wasn't it? Except for against Sunderland we started playing after 45 minutes and after against Luton we started playing after 10. Um but we gave ourselves more to do against Luton than we did uh, than we did against Sunderland because obviously we only went one down against Sunderland and we went uh, and we went two down against Luton but you you do have belief in this side. I mean first of all here's here's the data point on this because we should not take for granted coming back from two goals down against the team. To put that in perspective the last time we did that, and many of you will remember this, was the 29th of March, 2008. 
when we went 2-0 down against Colchester, got them back to 2-2, then went 3-2 down, and in the injury time, goals from James Morrison and Roman Bedner won us the game. So we do not come back from two goals down. So the 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 size of that achievement, first of all, Pete, is absolutely incredible because it it has been near near on 15 years since we last came back from two goals down to win a game that's first of all that is very very that is staggering and it goes to show the mentality that Corbran has instilled in this team and and again Connor Townsend did speak about this in his in his post-match interview first of all there is a mentality where that we don't know when we're beaten but what I like even more than that, Pete, and we said this after the Sunderland game, is that I honestly believe under Steve Bruce, we got that game back to one-one against Sunderland. I think we would, you know, we we would have shut up shop. I don't think you would see when uh, when Eric Peters comes off, Taylor Gardner Hickman coming on. Similarly, against the you know, when we got it back to 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 2-2. Two, two. We were so quick in going and getting the third goal. There was none of this, oh, we've got it back to 2-2. Two, two. Let's just sit. Let's settle the game down for five, ten minutes. And then the opposition come and have another go and try and regain the lead. We just knew they were shell-shocked. And there was only one thought in our mind, and that was go and win the game. And it, it, it's just such an enormous mentality shift. I think what speaks volumes for Carlos Corbrandt is we have not drawn a game yet under him he doesn't settle for draws he he twists at level and if you end up going and getting a little bit done on the break like we did against Coventry and losing the game by a goal so be it we lose the occasional game but I think he knows with the quality of this side more often than what happened against Coventry will happen it's more likely that what will happen against Sunderland or what happened against Luton on Saturday will happen because I think he believes we've got the quality if at level he he twists that we will go on and win the game and I think it's such a massive mentality shift from Bruce who I don't think it was a coincidence that we drew as many games as we did under Bruce as we said at the time I felt we were we 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 were we weren't far off you know the 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 margins were so small we weren't losing games by more than one goal we were drawing an awful lot of matches i don't think we were far off on, under bruce but i just don't think the mentality from the manager was there in the last 10 15 or even 20 minutes of a game to go and win it what do you think i think you could see the mentality in the players after Mullumby got his goal because he obviously sprinted over to the fans had a set celebrate with them but that was very brief. It was maybe like five seconds before he sprang back to the centre circle, and I think it just showed that. Yeah, they were... most of the players were grabbing the ball out the, the back of the goal, weren't they, and, and ready to go up the go up the, go back to the halfway line. Exactly, it looked like a team that maybe scored one goal back from a, a two 0 lead or something. So they're still chasing one just to get a draw, rather than a team that just equalised away from home after being two two nil home, two nil. And away down. from home against a good side as well, Pete. This isn't like. No disrespect to them, but go, go uh, equalising away from home, like when we equalised against Huddersfield, where you'd probably expect us to go on and win this game. This this is a Luton side who, okay, have only uh, have only won three games 
at home all season, but they've only they, they they've now only lost three games uh, at home as well. They they're not an easy team to beat. Yeah, Luton have been a very good side over the past couple of seasons, so they're yeah no, it's definitely not an easy game going down to Luton. But I think it was clear that we wanted the three points, um, and we weren't happy to just settle for the draw. And I suppose when Corbrand knows the quality of the squad and the quality of what we've got on the pitch as well, not just the squad, because obviously we had the same quality squad under Bruce, but what we saw on the pitch was a different standard. Um, but we've got that quality on the pitch as well, well-structured and we create chances. And I think it makes sense to to gamble for the for the win because if you get the goal, you know, you're benefiting with two extra points. If you get, if you can see one on the break and, and lose the game, you're only losing that one point. But so it's, to me, when you've got quality on the pitch, it's probably worth a gamble because I say more often than not, we we would get the goal rather than concede it, and you get those extra points as well. We've said this all season, though, haven't we, Pete? You know, draws get you nowhere in this division. Um, um, we we we've constantly referenced them, and we will continue to reference them. That Blackburn are the best example of that. Blackburn are a, um, a point above us, and they've lost five more games than us, and they've got a minus four goal difference, but they haven't drawn a single game. So the problem with Bruce's approach and being that little bit more cautious in the latter period of games is that is that if you draw games, it doesn't get you anywhere. Blackburn, as I say, 14 wins, 13 defeats from 27 football matches and they're fifth. And, and that, that tells you all you need to know. But the other thing on the mentality shift, Pete, and we just had a bit of a chat about this off air, is that, again, and I'm... I'm loath to mention Steve Bruce too much because uh, because I, I, I you know I don't want us to turn into Newcastle fans where we're obsessed with the guy who was our manager earlier in the season because I don't but but where I do think it's healthy is to try and work out where the differences have been made and why Corbrand's Albion is performing so much better than Steve Bruce's Albion. It's not a matter of getting on Steve Bruce's back. To be honest, Bruce is gone. I don't really, you know, good luck to him for his retirement or whatever happens, but he's not really my concern anymore because he's nothing to do with my football club. My concern is Carlos Corbrand, but where I am interested is the differences. And one of the big things that we highlighted under Steve Bruce, and particularly towards the end of his reign, and I think Preston away was the big game that we talked about this, Pete, was the lack of players in the in the penalty box and the lack of desire, apparent apparent desire to score goals. And under Corbran, it seems so evident that the desire is there to score goals. And I thought that was evident on all three goals in very different ways against Luton. First of all, there's Daryl DK's goal, which is reminiscent of um, uh, Romelu Lukaku against Sunderland, for anybody who re- remembers that, where he, Lukaku chased down Mignolet and deflected. I mean, Lukaku's was much further out, but he deflects it into, into the back of the net. Very, very similar goal. But that's all about the desire of DK to chase what realistically is a 60-40 ball in the goalkeeper's favour. And that's desire. 90% of that goal is desire. There's not really that much ability in there because he just gets his leg in there. It's desire and having the pace to get there, obviously. The second goal, again, whilst the initial ball in from Matt Phillips is quality, and we will come on to talk about Matt Phillips a a bit more later on because I thought he was tremendous against Luton. But whilst the first ball in 
from Phillips is a decent ball. After that, it's about two things. It's about wanting to score the goal and players fighting for the ball in the penalty area. But it's also about having the quantity of bodies in the box to keep that ball alive long enough for Malumbi to eventually get the shot into the ground that goes into the back of the net. And that's something we didn't see see under Bruce. And then the third goal is all about, I mean, first of all, again, similar to the, the second goal, it's all about the delivery from Matt Phillips. But then the other thing is, it does go all the way across the box. And it's about the fullback gambling in at the back post. It's, again, having that license for your fullbacks to get into the penalty area, which you think back to the days of Jed Wallace slinging in balls under Steve Bruce. And how many times did you see people on social media going, oh, the crossing data, it's a waste of time. We're putting balls into nobody that's there. Well, that ball on Saturday didn't need a big man coming in on it. It needed... Connor Townsend, who I believe is five foot ten, but if you believe Wikipedia is apparently five foot six, but he's coming in on the back post to put it in. It's not about the size or the physicality of the player coming in. It's about the quality of the ball, which we've had all season. But what we haven't had all season is the players coming in on it. I think there's been a massive shift in our desire and commitment to score goals under Carlos Corbran, Pete. If you're going to put balls into the box, um, then you either need a target to aim for. Um, and obviously we've got, got DK, which helps now, or you, you need numbers in there. Um, and if you get numbers in there, then you, you more likely to make the first contact. And even if you don't, then you're more likely for a second ball just to drop to you and, and have one of your players on the end of it to, to have a good shot on goal. So I think it's vital to, to get the numbers into the box when you're putting crosses in, in there. And we've got some excellent, crosses of the ball. Obviously, we've seen Jed Wallace the whole season. He's been superb with the balls he's putting into the box. Um, and Matt Phillips as well. He's got good delivery. And the one that led to the final goal um, to find Townsend at the back post was, you know, basically a perfect ball in. It was... It's undefendable, isn't it? Yeah, right. Through that, you know, what they call the corridor of uncertainty. Don't know if the keeper's coming for it or if a defender's going to go for it. And perfectly onto the back post where Towson well, Defenders just... look at a ball like that and think, if I put a foot on this, this is this is ending up in my own net, don't they? Exactly. And it's probably just a little bit too far for a keeper to come out and claim it. And yeah, and it just landed perfectly at the back post where Townsend was coming onto it. And what looked like it could have been a tough in Townsend did his best to make sure the keeper wasn't going to get to it. So yeah, we've got excellent And that's and... what he did, Pete. <laughs> I'm so glad you explained that to me because I I thought I thought he just he just got his nine iron underneath it. <laughs> well, yeah, you never know. Yeah, so numbers in the box and time to runs as well and getting plays in the right areas. Obviously, the back post is an extremely dangerous area because of exactly what happened. Often the keepers ends up the wrong side of the goal because they're on the side of where the cross is coming in. So if you get through at the back post, then quite often have a tap in there and it's a really high up value area. Um, and we saw it read in that a lot of the time DK was getting across his man to the front post as well. That's where he scored his goal um, in the second half against Reading, uh, which is obviously as well a really valuable area because if you can get in front of your man, then you've got, a, got an attempt at goal. Um, so we seem to be getting into good threatening areas in the box as well as just getting numbers into the box. And um, we seem to be seeing the rewards of it as well. 
Absolutely. And I think as well, the mentality shift, Pete, I think we were, when, when I looked at the average position data, I mean, it was, it was startling. I know game state plays a big part in this and, but that's kind of my point here, really, that you look at where the average position of the players were, were. Daro Shea is basically a back one. For, mo- for most of the game in terms of where he touches the ball. Eric Peters pushes forward into midfield. Um, the average position of Jason Malumbi, who many would see as a sitting midfielder, is as high as Matt Phillips's average position. The two fullbacks are up there with the midfielders as well. The, the commitment from Corbran to get back into the game, and I think probably a realisation from Corbran that, Luton are not the most offensive side in the world and that they're probably going to sit off at 2-0 after 10 minutes and try and soak you up a little bit. So you can overcommit to a certain degree. Uh, don't get me wrong. I think I think if we went if if we go 2-0 down inside the first 10 minutes on Friday against Burnley, I don't see Corbrand doing quite what he did against um against Luton because I think we'd get absolutely destroyed on the break and we'd probably end up losing the game 5 or 6 nil if we if we did the same as against Burnley at 2-0 down as we did against Luton at 2-0 down but he knows the opposition he knows what they're going to do next and he put enough players into offensive positions to make it a possibility that we got back into the game and we from that tenth minute onwards, Pete, let's let's call it like it was. We absolutely bossed that game. It wasn't like we took the only three chances that that we had over uh, over the course of the match. We've had seventeen attempts on goal. You know, we've uh, we've we've had uh, we, we've had a lot of shots, and that's all come as a result of Corbran committing to trying to get back into the game. The uh, whereas. Again, I felt under Bruce at, at, at times there, there was an element of, right, let's steady this down. We've just conceded a goal or we've conceded a couple of goals. Let's calm things down a little bit. Corbran knew the opposition, knew they were going to sit in and soak us up. And he we we battered them, really, from the 10th minute onwards, didn't we? Yeah, and if you look at the expected goals, um, it was 2.31 to Albion and 0.57 to Luton. And if you use that to create a percentage chance of each team winning then it was a 80% chance that Albion won based on the chances created and conceded by, by them so I think you can definitely say that that's a very dominant performance um, we created a lot of chances and and had shots on goals had shots on goals and then um, also controlled the game towards the end of it as well when we were leading the game and after that I think you said that it was only uh, two shots in the game after we'd taken the lead, and yeah, one for us and one for them, which is which which is startling, really, because as I, as I say, there uh, just to put this in perspective, Pete and I were chatting about this off air. There was twenty seven shots on goal during that uh, d- during the course of the game. Of the of those twenty seven uh, shots on goal, twenty five of them came the sixty seventh minute or earlier, i.e., Connor Townsend's goal or earlier. So we uh, it was a really open game when we wanted it to be, but we shut it down completely in the last twenty three minutes of that uh, of that game to the point where there was only one shot on goal for us and one shot on goal for them. 
games are open when we want them to be, Pete, but when we want them to be completely closed off, we're pretty good at that too. And that's exactly what you need because it means you can be confident in your ability to well shut down those games and and get the points at the end of it and not almost be desperate to find that second goal to well in that in the case of the Luton game the fourth goal to give us the two goal lead um, to be sure of getting the three points if you can shut down the games and just kind of stop any team from having any shots or creating any chances then you can be fairly confident that you're going to see out the game and obviously that's a mixture of um, tactical setup and just obviously you've got to be smart as well with you know taking time on goal kicks and throw-ins and just killing any momentum that the opposition has not just wasting time but killing the momentum if they're looking like they're building something up then yeah you, you've got to be smart as well as having the it's gamesmanship isn't it and, and I think I, th- I think one of the things that you can accuse us of over the last few years I think we've been too nice as a team yeah it's exactly that and you do need it's part of the game so you may as well embrace it when you're winning obviously everyone hates it when teams are doing it against you and uh, yeah I think the Reading game was a prime example of that when they were trying to waste time after about three minutes of the game obviously it was very frustrating as an Albion fan but it's part of the game and I think you've got to use it to your advantage when when the, that situation calls for it so well, I think, I think we said it. We said it around the Reading game, didn't we, Pete? That when we when we moan about teams time wasting, we're not complaining about the team doing it because that's part of the game. We're complaining about the fact that the officials don't uh, never seem to actually deal with the situation. But until until they don't until they start dealing with it, you've got to you've got to play the hand you're dealt, haven't you? And you've got you've got to you've got to engage in this gamesmanship because if you don't, you'll lose football matches. Well, the you know their job, the Albion players' job at the end of the day is to win win football games. So you've got to, yeah, you've got to do it because teams are going to do it against you. And if you're not going to do it yourself, if you're going to be, you know, playing perfectly fair, then you're going to suffer for it. So I think you've got to, yeah, use it when it's needed. And it's the job of the fi- the officials to clamp down on it and stop it from happening. But yeah, you've got to make the most of it. And it's it's obviously gamesmanship, gamesmanship, but it's also well, it's game intelligence as well because you've got to see the right moment to cut the momentum and just slow the game down. And it seems to be that we've got, you know, we've got a hand, a hang of it. I think against Reading, we were a little bit more. It was obviously we were obviously leading, and there was shots coming in against us, and we that was a bit more of a, you know, we we're clinging on a little bit more. But in, in the looting game, we felt quite under control in the last twenty minutes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, let's just go back to Connor Townsend a moment because we mentioned him before. But I do want to, I do want to spend a little, little bit more time. And I, I, I joked at the start with a, with a, with a Brent um, office quote um, that uh, you know we we may have spurred him on. Uh, I, um, I, I, I can't imagine Connor Townsend spends his evenings listening to to Pete and I. But um, I'd, lo- I'd love it if he did. But I, I, I sincerely doubt it. Um, but I mean. It is something we spoke about a number of times, Pete, but and it's becoming more prevalent under Corbran that it would be so big for us if he could improve his finishing because he gets into great positions under Corbran. I mean, he had four shots in the game against Luton. That's more than any other West Bromwich Albion player on the pitch. That's your left back having the most shots of anybody on the uh, uh, in your team. 
So clearly there is some sort of very obvious effort from Corbran to get him more involved in offensive areas. And across the whole season, he's had 0.8 shots a game. So really, you know, he's, he's having, he's having a shot most games. That's not bad for a fullback. And even, even prior to that, he was just under a, a shot every other game in his last two seasons where he's been, he's been a regular. And I think you've run the XG data on, uh, on him, Pete. And I think that shows up that he should be scoring because that, that uh, to, to make the point, he obviously scored one goal in the FA Cup against West Ham. But other than that, that is his first West Bromwich Albion goal in 134 league appearances. And when you look at the data, Pete, he he gets into excellent positions. He's actually positionally, and in terms of making runs and getting and getting on the end of things, I actually think he's a brilliant attacking fullback in that sense. He, he's, let's put a fine point on it. He's just quite a bad finisher, isn't he? It seems that way. And at the minute, this season he's had a total of three expected goals. Two point one of them have come under Carlos Corbran, though, and that's in well. Obviously, the other 0.9 under Steve Bruce, and at the time of recording, he's played less minutes under Corbran than he did under Bruce. So it's extremely impressive that he's getting these chances under Corbran, and he's had a total XG more under Corbran with less minutes than he did. His XG per 90 under Corbran has been 0.21, and under Bruce it's 0.06, so it's gone up by 250%. Um, so Corbran's got Townsend getting into the box and getting him, well, we I think the goal against Luton was a prime example in attacking good areas and into good positions. And I seems to be talking about it a lot today, but I go back to the Reading game and he had that header from about six yards out that he got. I think that was a bit unlucky, to be honest. It was a very difficult chance, but, you know, it hit the post. So, again, a very good chance at the back post, which kind of explains why, how his expected goals numbers have gone up because he is getting into dangerous areas and it wasn't really the case under... Bruce, um, and he's also having more shots since Corbrand's come in. He's had a, a shot once every three games from corner situations. So probably not directly from a corner, but after like the the scramble of a corner. So he's actually in the box for for those situations and and getting shots off in them. Um, whereas I don't. Think and he again, had any... we're keeping those those set piece situations alive more under Corbrand, aren't we? Again, I think due to sheer bodies in the box. Yeah, and. Um, obviously that's important because the ball's bobbling around in dangerous areas so it doesn't take too much and it doesn't take too much quality to just you know tow it into the back of the net and that's a goal for you but yeah he's Corbrand's decided to use him and get him in the box for those corners and without looking through all the video I, I don't think Bruce did because he didn't have any shots from corner situations under Bruce this season so I think the main point now, is that Bruce generally left him back on the halfway line. Uh, he was he was one of the two that was normally the normally back um, defending. It was normally normally him and whoever a deep line midfielder like Malumbi was. Mm. So it's obviously a change in setup, and um, well, I think Corbin does have a big focus on what you call the rest defence, the defence defensive setup whilst you're attacking, just in case you lose the ball and the opposition want to try and counter on you. You need that good setup, men at the back and in good positions to prevent that counter-attack and keep you solid even if you, you are losing the ball and the opposition are trying to counter-attack. So that's also the case in corners and 
I imagine he's done lots of work and thinking on who is best suited to protect the defence um, from against counterattacks from corners and set piece set piece situations, as well as who's the most important to have in the box to attack those set pieces. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a puzzle to figure out who should be where, but yeah, it definitely seems to be working. Do you think as well that, that uh, how high up the pitch Corbran is asking him to play is possibly leading to some of the criticism that he gets about his positional sense that, you know, people people do say, well, that we can get caught in behind Townsend. And that that's certainly true. But I wonder whether that is, rather than poor positional play from Townsend, I wonder whether that's a calculated risk from Corbran. What do you think? I say it's a mixture of the two, really. I have criticised his positioning in defensive situations before, and I think he can kind of fall behind the defensive line and be playing people on side. But that's very different to him being asked to play high up the pitch and then the opposition trying to use the space in behind him because one's, I'd say one's Townsend's fault if it's just a defensive situation and he he gets out of line with the the defensive line and that's on him if he's being asked to play high and we're attacking and and he's high up the pitch um, then that's kind of a, a managerial decision, a tactical decision and any balls that are played into the space that you'd expect him to be in if we were just in a settled defence then that's not on him, that's on Corbran for asking him to play so high and you'd expect him to have a defensive structure where someone most likely Peters shifts across to then cover that space. So then that's his space to cover rather than Townsend. Um, yeah, it's, it's obviously you can't just expect players to only stand in one space and keep the the exact structure in the exact shape for the whole game and just kind of move, everyone move together, forward, backward, sideways, whatever. Players rotate and play in different roles and depending on different situations in the game. Um, so if Townsend's pushing high, then that's most likely something he's been asked to do and it's no longer his responsibility to cover the, the space on the our defensive left wing. Um, so I don't think that's on him. I think, yeah, you've got you to judge it on the situation rather than just saying, oh, there's a ball played into the our left channel. So therefore it's Townsend's fault for not being there. Just moving on from Connor Townsend and the other main player that I wanted to focus on from... Uh, from from the game against Luton, and I, I see that Jason Malumbi has won the man the match um, uh, from the from the Albion vote, and completely understand why he was excellent in that game. But for me, from looking at everything, and uh, the standout performer was Matt Phillips. I thought he was absolutely tremendous, and he's put two balls into the box: one for the second goal which is a good ball and creates all that havoc that leads to leads to the to the the second goal but the ball for the third goal my goodness me as we said before Pete it's absolutely undefendable it's whipped into that as you called it the corridor of uncertainty between the sort of goalkeeper and six yard box. It's horrible to defend. It's an absolutely phenomenal ball. But it wasn't just that with with Phillips. I thought his his general his general play was superb and three key passes, which was the most of anybody in the in the Albion team, 
I thought he was a real standout performer. And I know we've said this in previous weeks. Look, I'd, I'd like to say, generally speaking, 99% of the time, I don't tend to have an agenda or a bias towards players. So when I come on here and I sort of quote the data or the data as I see it and try and defend certain players who get some stick from the fan base, that's not me just trying to be um, just, uh, you know, I'm in love with this player, so I must defend them. It's it's rare that I do that. I mean, you know, my, my time my time at West Bromwich Albion ended long enough ago that I don't know any of the current playing staff personally. Um I think that I think the last the the last players that I worked with to leave the football club were Brunton Morrison. So it's not like I have a personal relationship with any with any of these players. I don't know any of them. So I I like to think I just take things fairly cold on the data. And I've been a big critic of Matt Phillips over the years I've I've often said as my father has heard me say on many occasions when the going gets tough Matt Phillips is nowhere to be found and that's been my opinion of him I uh, I feel like this season we needed to find some leaders within the squad I think Jed Wallace has come in and he's absolutely added that I think ne- since Yukoslu has got his fitness back I think he's added that I think the likes of DK and Thomas Asante have added bags of personality to this squad. But I think we needed some more some more leadership, especially with with Jake Livermore not really playing a part under Corbran at all, who's obviously whatever you think about Jake Livermore, all the things we hear about him from around the camp is that he is very well liked and that he is a he is a good captain in the sense of what he does day to day at the training ground. He's great with the young players. He has good relationships with managers, things like that. So you know whether you think Jake Livermore is worthy of a spot on the in the team, and I think most Albion fans would say that he isn't, and I agree with that. He is. You are losing a leader out of the matchday squad, and I think it's needed experienced players to step up. And if I'm honest, at the start of the season, I would have said the last bloke that I would expect to step up and be a real leader for this team would have been Matt Phillips. But I tell you what, I'd have been dead wrong, Pete. I think he's, I, I just think he's grown immeasurably this season. And I think he's an absolute leader of men out there on that football pitch at the moment. Well, he's got plenty of experience to go with, obviously, his quality as well, because I imagine he's among the, well, he's got to be among the longest serving players at Albion. Um, you know, he's coming towards the end of his career and he's played a lot of, played a lot of games. So, but the things you've heard about him in the past as well, like the, the quotes Pulis used to come out with about how Matt Phillips, he needs an arm around him, his confidence is up and down, it's it's so hard to get the best out of him, etc., etc. It didn't smack of a guy that that you felt you could go to war with. And yet, because uh, I agree with you, he's had a lot of football in the past, but all the things managers have said about him in the past have smacked of a guy that kind of lacks those qualities to to go to war with him and to lead people yet suddenly there seems to have been a switch flicked in him yeah and maybe it's a new manager coming in and him getting a a new chance if you like and start from scratch with him and he seems to be very willing to impress and that is exactly what he's doing so I don't think any Albion fans are going to have any complaints about that and we we just hope it continues Um, I think he's what is potentially the issue with Matt Phillips is I mean, it's not necessarily an issue, but why he maybe gets underrated at times is because he's 
I don't think he really stands out in anything he does. I think he's just a very well-rounded winger at this level. And I mean, he's pretty direct, but he's not exactly lightning quick. Um, he's actually quite a good dribbler, but it, a lot of the time it doesn't seem the case. I think he just doesn't do a lot that catches the eye, but he's very well-rounded. Um, and his data reflects that as well, doesn't it, Pete? Because before we came on, I knew we were going to talk about Matt Phillips and I looked at his seasonal data and he is, I would say he's good in everything, but he's not great in anything. Like he's not, he's not got loads of assists. He's not at the top of the goals chart. He's not top of key passes. He doesn't win more tackles yet. He's also nowhere near the bottom of any of those, uh, those stats. He just seems, he seems like Mr. Seven out of 10 at the moment. I, I personally think he was a nine on Saturday, but I think most weeks he's Mr. Seven out of 10, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. And, most of his attributes, he's, you know, very well-rounded, kind of middle of the park and some towards the, the better end of the spectrum. So, yeah, I think that's maybe why he kind of goes under the radar quite often and people think we're not really getting much out of him because he is just consistently good at most things rather than just being excellent at, at maybe one thing, which stands out more. So it's... Yeah, Do you I need those players, though? I mean, you, you can't you can't have a team full of flair, can you? No, and it's. I'd say it's it's reliable, and obviously reliability is is going to be key in a forty six game season. So, yeah, most definitely need those kind of players, and obviously you you want to add players that have got maybe a bit more flair and a bit more excitement alongside them. But well, if you can have a play- on that point, sorry, Pete, to interrupt you, but on that point, his 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 main competitor for that role is Grady Dingana, who who is exactly what we're talking about there, who is like, sometimes he's just not in a game like he was against, he wasn't against Chesterfield. Like, and you'd probably call that a three, four out of 10 performance. And then other games, you go back to the whole game where that's almost as good a performance as I can remember from a player in the championship. He, he can fluctuate. Whereas it seems like Corbrand's like, I would rather play someone like Grady last 20 and and Grady played a part in the third goal with a lovely little bit of skill to create the space for, for Phillips to put the ball in. But I think Corbran would rather go with Grady last 20 and have Matt Phillips's total and utter reliability for the, for the first 70 than the other way around, than, than have Grady who, you know, as I say, you probably don't quite know what you're going to get from him as much. I think Grady would struggle to get consistent starts until he, he can start to show that consistency again. Um, I think it's, yeah, I don't think that's really questionable because you need consistency and you need players that are going to be reliable that when you send them out, they're going to, they're going to put in a, at least a decent performance. And that's what Matt Phillips is doing at the minute. And Grady seems to be fluctuating from good performances to very quiet and sometimes even poor performances. I think, yeah, when you've got a player that, when you send a player out to start, you're expecting them to play at least 60 minutes. So, you do need someone that you can rely on to put in that decent performance. And as I say, Matt Phillips is doing that. So I can't see him losing his spot in the starting 11 at the minute. Just, I mean, Matt Phillips is obviously one that has had some criticism on social media. And I've I've kind of hit back against it. I, I, I mean, I remember um, 
it was uh, before the Bristol City game um, when the team news was announced. The comments from Albion fans, oh, not not Phillips again, blah blah blah, all this sort of thing. And then Phillips goes and scores within minutes of the of the of the the start of the game and makes a, a bunch of very negative people look quite silly. And to a similar point, Pete, just something I wanted to raise. And I uh, look, I realise there's an element of man shouts at cloud about this because um, social media is what it is. And people are always going to go on there and be keyboard warriors and be trolls and be negative. But the club, after the Luton game, put out a post about Adam Reach playing his 50th game for the club. And bearing in mind, we've just won nine games out of 10 and have just come back from 2-0 down to win 3-2 away at a place that is very difficult to win at. The comments just amazed me. The abuse for Adam Reach, the the negativity towards him. For a guy who, okay, he's not contributing a great deal this season, but also he's not doing an awful lot wrong either. I mean, look, it's not his fault. There's maybe it is his fault. There's better players in front of him, but I think it's just an ability issue. He didn't sign himself to this squad. He's he he signed and he's a bit part player. That it is what it is. That you know he's not going to get in ahead of Matt Phillips, um, uh, Jed Wallace, John Swift, or even in one of those deeper roles ahead of Malumbi or Yukoslu at the moment. And I just don't understand why people need to go onto social media after we've won nine games out of 10 and find something to complain about, it's staggering to me. And I also don't buy the argument, well, you pay your money, you can say what you like. Well, no, you can't. That's that's like saying because you buy a ticket, you've got carte blanche to be as much of an uh, of a offensive person as you want to be. I mean, these same people probably have hashtag be nice on their profiles and then go on and just... Uh, slate people from behind a keyboard and we look we saw the same thing after Albion uh, celebrated uh, Jake Livermore making his 200th appearance for the club I just don't get it we're supposed to be supporters of this club and these players and look there is an awful lot to complain about off the pitch at this moment in time in fact there's an awful lot of very very worrying things going on off the pitch but there's absolutely nothing to complain about on the pitch. And I'm sorry, if you can't support the players now, and whether that's Jed Wallace or Brandon Thomas-Sante or someone like that who's had a brilliant season, even down to Jake Livermore or Adam Reach or anybody else who's played a bit part for this team this season, if you can't support all these guys now, then I'm sorry, you can never support them because we've won nine out of ten. We never do this. We're West Bromwich Albion for crying out loud. We're not Manchester City. Like, we don't win nine games out of ten. This doesn't happen. I can't remember this the last time this happened. And yet, people still have to find something to be negative about, Pete. And as I say, man shouts at cloud. That's effectively what this is, because man trying to stop people from being negative and trolls on Twitter is is a thankless task. But... I just can't get I can't get my head around it. I really, really can't. And for me, the people that go on and criticise a player on a club official post after a 3-2 win that made it nine wins out of ten, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be able to call yourself supporters because you, you don't support anything. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. It's very strange behaviour. You'd think you're a 
after a 3-2 win coming back from two goals behind away from home you'd be just yeah I, I mean I'm just extremely happy about it and the last thing I'm thinking about is criticising a player that's sitting on the bench and, and has just come on for his 50th appearance but as I say very strange behaviour it's not as if he's doing anything particularly wrong when he was when Adam Reach was signed he was signed under Ishmael and I think he was signed to play that well back up to that wing back role but I think does actually suit him obviously we're not playing that system at the minute um but he is fit he's available for selection he's coming on off the bench and he's he may not be doing an awful lot but he's certainly fit and giving it his all when he is coming on for the pitch yeah, he's so. not doing an awful lot wrong either is he no exactly um and as I say he's, he's read it it's not like he's sitting and sulking and not training hard enough and isn't ready for when he's called upon. He's he's there, he's fit, he's on the bench and he's coming on and he's, as you say, not doing an awful lot wrong. Um, well, yeah, I don't think there's that much more to say about him than that because obviously we've seen players in the past that are, you know, they're getting their wages but they're not either not fit or not willing or something's going on behind the scenes and they're not there to play. Adam Reach is, you know, whenever he's on, he's given 100% and I think that's all you can ask of him. It's not his fault that he's got better players in front of him that Corbrand's picking other players. So, yeah, all he can do is, when he's called upon, then be ready and give it his all. And he does that. And it makes no sense to me why people would go and criticise him for making his 50th appearance for the club. No, absolutely not. And as I say, there are bigger things to concern yourself with. If you if you, if you are in desperate need of something to complain about or, or, or be concerned about, then look, there's, there's everything that's going on off the pitch. And... I noted that um, Action for Albion, um, they're, they're trying to get everybody who supports Action for Albion to sit together in the Woodman corner for the for the Chesterfield game. So another another round of protests uh, happening, um, which has, um, from from what I gather as well, started to open up lines of communication with with the club, which is which is great to hear as well. So that you know that's that's a real positive, Pete. And I, and I just wanted to sort of compare. And look, I don't want to. I don't want to dig out another another club's fans here, um, but because everybody has the right to protest in the way that they want to. But in terms of how Action for Albion is being featured in the media versus the criticism that was levelled at Everton fans for the way they've gone about their protests against their ownership. They got a lot of stick on match of the day. From what I understand, I'm told by somebody I've not actually heard the clip myself that that Talk Sport went to task on them as well. And I think when you are trying to protest something and try and make a point and make yourself heard, I think one of the things that is so, so important is that you maintain credibility and that you maintain the support of the media. And I think what I saw from Everton over the last week showed me how if you get this a bit wrong, how easy it is to lose the support of the media and lose that credibility and, you know, lose the lose the broader support that helps you gain sympathy towards your cause. And I just wanted to take a moment, Pete, to applaud action for Albion for the way they've gone about things because when you see and like I say I'm not trying to have a dig at Everton they have although some of it from what I hear about like directors in headlocks or whatever that is not acceptable by any stretch of the imagination 
but look, if they want to make noisy sit-ins and stuff like that, that's absolutely fine. And that's totally their right. But what I would say is that where I'm so, so proud of Ali and Paul and the guys at Action for Albion, that they are going on shows that other podcasts that we're happy to mention like the price of football and Ali regularly going on WM and updating Daz on what's going on uh, with with Action for Albion and you're seeing that and you're seeing them act in a way that's credible and that the media have so much sympathy with our cause when you compare that to how the media have reacted in the last week to the way Everton have gone about things and as I say this is not me taking a stance on how Everton have gone about things but what I'm saying is they've lost the sympathy from the media whereas Action for Albion because of the way they've gone about things have maintained that support from the media at large and have afforded Ali and the guys the opportunity to one open up lines of dialogue with the club and two to have enough credibility to go and speak to people like Kieran Maguire on his podcast and things like that. And I just, I just think it just shows how right they have got their approach to these things, Pete. Absolutely. It seems to have been extremely well planned and thought out by Ali and the, the rest of Action for Albion. Very uh, civilised, but still sending the message. And because of that, they've been given the chance to, to speak to the club and open those channels of communication which is uh, vitally important and yeah I think it shows that they've gone about it in a smart way and been rewarded by going about it in that way as well so full credit goes to them. When we look forward to what the next steps are and we look forward to the next steps for West Bromwich Albion because for the first time in a long time I genuinely look forward to pretty much every game at the, at the moment we've obviously got two coming up in the next week we've got um a, a replay against Chesterfield in the FA Cup on Tuesday and then of course we face Burnley in a, what is an absolutely massive game away on Friday due to the proximity of the games um the next post match podcast will be looking back on the Burnley game um so we um, and if there is a few items to speak about from the Chesterfield game we'll cover them in that one because as I say when the games come thick and fast like that sometimes you just have to bundle them in um but so uh, you will hear our next uh post-game podcast after the Burnley game which hopefully we'll record next weekend so until then thanks for listening and up the baggies Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNuggets share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.